After the Battle of St Albans in May 1455, York's position appeared impregnable. Barely a morning's bloodletting had left the York Neville faction unchallenged, and it seemed that the dire prospect of all-out civil war had been averted. Sadly, this was only a cruel illusion. The Battle of St Albans, in fact, settled nothing. For although York had cleared out some of his enemies, there was nothing to stop King Henry VI appointing anyone he liked to his government. So, unless York was prepared to limit, or whisper it softly, remove the king, then sooner or later he was likely to face a similar problem all over again. The battle also had some darker consequences. It irreparably damaged the relationship between King Henry and the Duke of York. After all, if you were Henry, would you put any trust at all in York, a man who had twice taken up arms against his anointed king, most recently causing him to be wounded? The opposite, of course, was the case. Contrary to popular opinion, Henry was not a fool. He rightly feared York's power, and his son was not yet three. Thus, he did not require too much persuasion from the Queen, Margaret of Anjou, who felt vindicated since her warnings about York now seemed to ring true. Although her court party was shorn of its leadership, the Queen remained York's implacable enemy. In her quest to find some allies to counterbalance the power of York and the Nevilles, she did not have to look too far. Somerset, Northumberland and Clifford might be dead, but their sons were very much alive and thirsty for revenge. There was much unfinished business as far as they were concerned. One leading nobleman was forced to rethink his attitude towards York. The Duke of Buckingham, like York and Warwick, was one of the wealthiest and most powerful men in the kingdom. But for him, St Albans had been a disaster. Not only had he taken several wounds during the fighting and been forced to seek sanctuary, but belatedly he realised that his counsel to the king that he should trust York had backfired badly. When, a little later, he was forced to choose sides again, Buckingham was not prepared to trust York a second time. So, after May 1455, rather than a settled court, we have a hotbed of intrigue and plotting. St Albans was not just a back-alley scuffle. It was a full-on skirmish, fought with serious intent. Important men had been killed, and someone had to take the blame. York had won, so it wasn't going to be him. Instead, he ensured that it was recorded in Parliament that the Duke of Somerset was to blame. York's forces were exonerated for any action they took at St Albans, such as, I suppose, fighting against and wounding their own king. There is no doubt that the man in charge in the aftermath of St Albans was Richard, Duke of York. At the centre of power, the important offices were given to York's allies, the usual suspects, Salisbury, Warwick, and a few other loyal supporters of York. Warwick became captain of Calais, which was the main prize. It is difficult from our vantage point in the early 21st century 
to grasp the significance of Calais in the 15th century. It was not the fag end of the English Empire in France, no longer relevant to England after defeat in the Hundred Years' War. Calais was still crucial. It was the only part of England that had a standing army, possibly as many as a thousand strong. It had resources for war and shipping, both of which were necessary for its defence and it was a major centre of trade. Yet, despite its importance, there were serious financial problems with Calais, for, as with many areas of Henry's government, it had often been starved of the money it required to function properly. Someone needed to take it in hand, but because of the uncertainties at court, Warwick delayed his departure. York knew that no matter how many pardons were awarded or offices gained, he was not secure. As a result, he decided to get himself appointed as protector again in November 1455. Since Parliament was in session, this was proposed by one of York's own clients in the House of Commons. The excuse being King Henry's poor health and the need to deal with a renewed outbreak of a feud in the southwest between the Courtenays and the Bonvilles in Devon. Though this feud was not quite on the epic scale of Neville versus Percy, it would certainly need a firm hand to control the two families. The council, despite its misgivings, acquiesced, as did Henry. But the second protectorate only lasted three months. And after that, York had to try to work with the rest of the council and hope to counteract the Queen's hostility. Despite Margaret's attempts to re-establish a court party, the period of 1456-7 saw a good degree of compromise and good sense in the measures the council was undertaking on the King's behalf. In the summer of 1456, Warwick was able to take up his new post in Calais and by 1457 he was given authority to protect the sea routes around Calais. Authority but precious little cash. During the periods when York ruled, there can be little doubt that he was a good deal more effective than his rivals. Yet, the nobility as a whole never really warmed to him. He was a difficult man to warm to. He had integrity and gravitas, but he possessed little charm or charisma. His fellow councillors might respect his abilities, but they did not like him very much. Those nobles who did not trust him, rather like the Queen, found it difficult to believe that York did not want more than just the position of chief councillor. At the same time as Warwick was taking up his position in Calais, Queen Margaret was working to create a new power base and in the process strengthened the position of her young son. London seemed to offer her little, so she took Prince Edward out of the capital and toured the north and west of England, so that the new prince could be seen. She set up her headquarters at Kenilworth, and from there she cemented ties with key men such as Jasper Tudor, Earl of Pembroke. Jasper was King Henry's half-brother, and became the linchpin of royal power in much of Wales and the West.
Other nobles in the region, such as the disgruntled Buckingham and the Earl of Shrewsbury, were also wooed into the royal fold. Critically, by August 1456, Margaret had contrived to move King Henry himself to Kenilworth, and that enabled her to influence royal appointments once again. The result was a new Chancellor, Shrewsbury became the new Treasurer, her previous allies, the Percys, re-established their influence. The young Earl of Northumberland came to court, and his younger brother, Egremont, escaped from jail. Their ally, the Duke of Exeter, was released from prison, and the heirs of Somerset and Clifford, who were killed at St Albans, were encouraged in their hostility to York. The Queen's direct involvement in factional politics was calculated to destroy the Duke of York. But there were still lords who were attempting to preserve unity between the rapidly diverging factions. Even Buckingham, despite his closer connection to the Queen's supporters, was still a force for moderation. It would have been obvious to all at court in 1457 that the York-Neville axis was in decline. But was that decline permanent or was it simply a bump in the road? The exact situation would not have been clear, because though York had been outmanoeuvred by the Queen, he still had much to offer the Kingdom, as was demonstrated in August that year, when a French raid on the southeast coast required action in the defence of the realm. The ineffective Duke of Exeter was hastily replaced as Admiral by Warwick, who quickly assumed control and dealt with the French incursion. So, despite what happened next, we cannot say that the demise of York was inevitable. In March 1458 came one of the most bizarre events of the whole Wars of the Roses period. Henry VI, who cherished peace above most things, summoned a great council of the nobles in an attempt to reconcile the two sides. But the leading men did not come alone. Some suspicious, others bitter and vengeful, they brought hundreds of retainers with them. In order to keep the peace, the city authorities housed the York retainers inside the city and the Lancastrian ones outside. It didn't stop the more determined hotheads, but it helped. The grudges the two factions held against each other were made all the more tangible by some huge outstanding fines imposed in earlier years by York and the Nevilles against their enemies. After much discussion, a form of words was produced which said that many of the fines would be reduced or removed altogether. To celebrate these empty words, a ceremony was held on the 24th of March 1458 called Love Day. It is pure Henry VI, a fantasy of peaceful intent. When a king is in a weak position, he always asks for promises and hopes for the best. The two sides processed to St Paul's in an outward show of unity. The Queen alongside York, Warwick with Northumberland and Somerset with Salisbury. But none of them had any intention of keeping their promises. This vain attempt 
to paper over the cracks with gossamer, fooled no one. Loveday changed nothing. In fact, it only served to demonstrate the deep chasm of division between the two rival factions. For beyond the outward show lurked thousands of retainers on both sides just spoiling for a fight. In such a situation, anything, even something quite trivial, could have fired the powder barrel. In the event, it was the Queen's hostility towards Warwick which did the trick. Warwick became her prime target. Not only did she blame him for the deaths of her noble favourites at St Albans, but she saw him as the most potent threat to her success because he held the pivotal base at Calais. In July 1458, Warwick was summoned back to London and a train of events quickly got out of hand. Fighting broke out between supporters of Warwick and the Queen. Warwick returned once more to Calais, but the Queen ensured that the funds he needed to pay the garrison there were not sent. Warwick's response was typically direct. He embarked on a piracy spree to raise his own cash, and he was very good at it. When he was recalled to London again in the autumn because of his piracy, there was more trouble. Once again he escaped to Calais, but the opening shots had been fired in the Civil War. By May 1459, it was clear that the Queen's party were preparing for open war, and in June she went for the jugular at a great council summoned to meet at Coventry. York, the Nevilles and their allies were not invited. This must have seemed all too familiar to them, and in their absence the council indicted York and his confederates. The king had now drawn a line in the sand, and the likes of Buckingham now had to choose a side. He chose the king, and his support gave the court party added momentum, probably convincing a few of the waverers. From this point on, war could only have been avoided by the utter capitulation of one side or the other. The king and queen were sure of their ground, and, knowing as we do what passed in the previous decade, we can see that Richard Duke of York was unlikely to concede defeat now. The rivalry played out so often in the council chamber would now have to be decided on the field of battle. York arranged to meet his allies at Ludlow, close to his power base in the Welsh marches. Warwick sailed from Calais and Salisbury set out with an army from his northern stronghold of Middleham Castle in Yorkshire. The Wars of the Roses were about to begin in earnest. <laughs>